more health questions about Mitch, an indictment expected for Hunter, and what's politics without a threat of a shutdown? Summer's over, kids, and it's time for school on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 401 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. Most of us are just getting back from our summer vacations, and for that reason I wasn't planning on an episode this week. But the deaths of two special people last week prompted me to rerun interviews I had with them years ago. The first is Bill Richardson, the former congressman, governor, ambassador, diplomat, and presidential candidate who died last Friday at the age of 75. I spoke with him in episode number 24, back in April of 2014, when, for some reason, I talked much faster than I do now. It was a fun conversation about the difficulty of getting noticed as a presidential hopeful when heavyweights like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were also in the race. Richardson was very candid about what he was facing. Less well-known, but also quite influential, was Jerry Carmen, an owner of a tire business in New Hampshire who played a key role in Ronald Reagan's 1980 primary victory in the Granite State. He also died on Friday at 93. I had Jerry on the political junkie in August of 2018 to talk about former Nevada Senator Paul Laxalt, who had died that month and whose White House Exploratory Committee was led by Jerry. Back in the day, during my ABC News career, when I spent quite a bit of time in New Hampshire, I got to know Jerry Carmen quite well. He often regaled me with the absolute best stories from his long career in Republican politics, always filled with good fun. This is one that he told me ages ago. I wish I'd remembered that when we were doing our interview years ago. Here goes. The airtight Senate race in 1974 between Republican Louie Wyman and Democrat John Durkin was considered too close to call, and it led to a recount. Jerry led the effort on Wyman's behalf. During the recount, which at one point Wyman was briefly declared the winner by four votes, the two sides were arguing over every single ballot. Jerry told me that one particular ballot didn't have a candidate's name on it. It just, it just said crook and both sides argued that it should be counted for them. I always loved that story. Meanwhile, going back to 1975, the Democratic-controlled Senate refused to accept the verdict that Wyman had won and instead declared the seat vacant. Eventually, the Senate called for a do-over election in September of 1975, which Durkin won. Anyway, I hope you enjoy hearing these two rebroadcasts. Meanwhile, some news out of the Senate where we learned that GOP leader Mitch McConnell's second freeze episode was not the result of a seizure or a stroke, at least according to a letter from the attending physician of Congress. McConnell's office continues to say the senator was merely suffering from dehydration. His party, which may very well recapture a majority in the Senate after next year's elections, pretty much remains united behind McConnell, already the longest-serving Senate leader in history. 
For his part, McConnell says he'll finish his terms both as GOP leader, which runs through the end of 2024, as well as for his Senate seat, which isn't up until 2026. And speaking of party leaders, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced Friday on the social networking site formerly known as Twitter that she's going to seek re-election in 2024. The announcement was somewhat of a surprise. Pelosi is 83 years old and had given up her leadership position after the Republicans won back the House last year. I debated whether to play this clip or not, but I decided to do so in order to show how the right wing sees Pelosi. This was Fox News' reaction to her announcement. It's a bunch of women and Ari Fleischer sitting around and questioning whether another term by Pelosi, who was first elected in 1987, is what San Francisco really needs. Because who else would know better than Fox News? Um, you know, did anybody really think that another octogenarian was going to give up the mantle on the left? <laughs> Absolutely not. She's looking at Diane Feinstein going, hold my Cabernet. Um, <laughs> I don't know that this is necessarily what San Francisco needs. You know, yeah. she's been in power a long time. And as long as she's been in power... That, that region, particularly San Francisco and, and Oakland, as Emily knows, being from that part of the country, it has really gone downhill. Uh, be, we're going to talk about this later in the show. People are hurting economically. Yes. And they're sick of the spin. And that's it. She's, she's spun like a top for the last 40 years. And I think we've all had it up to here. And we're pretty dizzy with establishment politics mm -hmm. as usual. Yeah, yeah you can't know, let it go. Sick of the spin. And sick of the spend mm. of their tax dollars right. on things that don't alleviate their problems and pains in the city of San Francisco and throughout, really, California. Um, I do want to get to this part with you, though, Ari, since you were, you know, in the White House at one point and probably saw all the speeches before they were given. I think this is interesting. With liberty and justice for all in caps. I don't know. Are we looking at another situation where when you become a victim of crime, suddenly you want justice? Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, what jumped out at me at that statement was not that she's running for re-election. That seat's always going to be a liberal seat, whether it's her or the next octogenarian. But she said in, in there, advance San Francisco values. I'd like her to flesh that out. <laughs> what, what values uh, are she yeah. referring to? Is she referring to the needles on the streets? Is she referring to the defecation? Wow. On, what is she referring to? Because I don't want San Francisco values. To be advanced. I'd like to keep them kind of cozied up and nestled right there in San Francisco. Oh. Don't let them out. That is the, um, this is the same woman that flaunted COVID restrictions in the city of San Francisco to get her hair done. Does she really care about San Francisco, guys? Come well, on. the same amount that Lori Lightfoot did when she got her <laughs> hair done as mayor of Chicago, I suppose. I mean, this is the, the last thing San Francisco needs is more of Pelosi. More of the establishment machine, more of this old white woman telling them exactly what they need from behind her locked gates with her extra security detail. Mm. I've lived there for many years. I'm from the East Bay. Um, it, is heart it is so disheartening for me to see her unwilling to step aside for someone that has actually fresh energy, new ideas, and gets what San Franciscans need, which is nothing that Pelosi can provide ever. And, and I alluded to the fact that, that you know, her husband was attacked last year and that they have dealt with crime already. She knows what the needs are. How she looks in the mirror and sees herself as the answer at this point would be a good question for Nancy Pelosi. Remember, if you're not sure what's good for San Francisco, tune into Fox News for the answer. If you're going to San Francisco
So here are the two interviews that are being repeated this week. Both Bill Richardson, the New Mexico Democrat, and Jerry Carmen, the New Hampshire Republican, appeared on The Political Junkie in years past, and both were delightful guests. We lost both last Friday. The media's focus on Clinton and Obama, and to some extent Edwards, made it hard for candidates like Bill Richardson, the governor of New Mexico, to break out of the pack. He had a long resume, longer than most of the other candidates, but it was tough getting people to notice. If he was frustrated, he didn't show it, except maybe in this clever commercial where he looks like he's at a job interview, sitting patiently while a nonplussed sandwich-eating supervisor is reviewing his resume. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay, 14 years in Congress, UN ambassador, Secretary of Energy, Governor of New Mexico, negotiated with dictators in Iraq, North Korea, Cuba, Zaire, Nigeria, Yugoslavia, Kenya, got a ceasefire in Darfur, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize four times. So, what makes you think you can be president? I'm Bill Richardson, and I approve this message. Bill Richardson is kind enough to join us today to talk about that debate and that campaign and his struggle to make people pay attention. Governor Richardson, thanks for coming on the show. Well, glad to be with you, Kent. Oh, do I love that commercial. I remember when it first came on, I just laughed my head off. Well, you know, I was trying to get attention. I was trying to break out of the pack. Uh, In Iowa at the time, it was uh, Clinton, Obama, John Edwards. John Edwards had run four years before. Uh, these two were superstars. And I was trying to get out uh, of the pack and, and be noticed. And the, the actually, the ad helped me quite a bit. For a while, I moved into third, but then later I drifted back to fourth. But I was trying to get some attention based on the fact that I felt I was qualified. But, you know, clearly, Ken, the people wanted to be inspired. They wanted an Obama or they wanted a superstar Clinton. So uh, you could tell early on that that's what the voters, at least in Iowa, wanted. Well, how how do you, I mean, that's a good question. How do you compete for the attention and the time and the money when you have these superstars in the race, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton? Well, it's difficult. You have to do a combination of things in states like Iowa. You have to go town to town, almost people to people, grassroots, uh, but, you know, there are voters there that care about issues, and I was hoping that at least uh, based on my background, my experience, maybe I could break through. You never know what's going to happen in a primary. Uh, people may uh, collapse. Uh, candidates may all of a sudden take off. So, uh, you know, you just, uh, in the political action of campaigning, uh, at that particular time, I was trying to get attention because I didn't have much name ID, especially in Iowa. You say that uh, you never know what's going to happen in a primary or a caucus, but you also never know what's going to happen in a debate. And so obviously you have to do a lot of preparation, hoping that you'll have a, a line or, or a com- comeback or something that people will remember. That's right. And unfortunately, most of the questioners, the anchors of the debates, they were trying to provoke news stories out of Clinton, Obama, and then Edwards, a little fight between Obama and Clinton. That's what the press wanted. 
So it was hard to even get a question planted at me. But I remember in one debate, Obama actually helped me because I wasn't listening to the question. Uh, I had felt that uh, I'd been forgotten, and they turned to me and said, Governor Richardson, how do you feel about Katrina? I didn't actually hear the question because I was distracted. And Obama kind of whispered in my ear, they asked you about Katrina. So he helped me out in that debate at a time when I needed some attention. But I, I think by that time, uh, voters had pretty much made up my mind. their mind. It was a two-person race, uh, Obama and Clinton. Well, I understand completely that if you didn't hear the question, because I was, I was watching the entire South Carolina debate the other day. Brian, Brian Williams, uh, the moderator, didn't get to you until his seventh question of the evening. I mean, you can go out and you know, see a movie waiting for somebody to ask you a question in a debate. Well, there were uh, times like that throughout the campaign. I think South Carolina was one of the first, uh, one of the first debates. But it wasn't until the last one in New Hampshire that I really got some time when it was just Clinton, Obama, Edwards, and myself. But by then it was too late. But these debates, it was frustrating because uh, you try to get notice, you try to get questions asked. And I always felt I performed well in these debates, but the press is a major player in presidential campaigns and in debates. And and the news story out of the debates was always an Obama-Clinton fight or something they said or uh, some kind of angle that they were pursuing. What's your view on the role of debates? Uh, you think there are too many? Um, a lot of people, a lot of Democrats think it seemed to work for Obama in 2008, maybe not so much for Mitt Romney in 2012 because he got beat up on a lot. Well, clearly the Republican debates in the last uh, presidential, there were just too many. There were, uh, there were probably at least 30. We had about 10. I thought it was just right. I think debates are important to inform the public. Uh, of what where the candidates stand, uh, and I think it's also good. Debates are good for candidates that are not well known, like myself, to get a chance to be heard, to hear our ideas exposed to the public. You spent a lot of years thinking about a run for presidency. You had to assemble a campaign team, raise a lot of money, build organizations in the states, and then you were gone from the race right after New Hampshire. If in retrospect, would you have done anything differently? I probably would have concentrated more of my resources in states where I probably would do well with Hispanic voters, Western voters, like Nevada, like uh, New Mexico, like California. But those are states. Uh, I probably but, would have done that differently. But those are states that come after Iowa, New Hampshire, and by then, you know, a lot of a lot of voters' minds are made up. It's almost too late in some cases. It, it's almost too late, but, you know, you never know. Again, what I'm going to say, what happens in politics. You may be uh, the flavor of the month uh, a lot later. Look, look at what happened with Republican candidates. A lot of the candidates emerged after Iowa and New Hampshire. And, and I think that might have happened in the Democratic Party. But uh, clearly, Iowa and New Hampshire, they're the bellwether states for a presidential campaign. But, you know, these were voters that uh, were not, uh, necessarily ethnic. They were not uh, Western. So I was introducing myself to them at a time when jo- Edwards had run before, at a time when Obama was the superstar and the Clinton had the Clinton name. So I was at a disadvantage. I'm not apologizing. I, 
I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I got to know the country. I got to know myself. It's a wonderful experience. I wish I'd lasted a little longer. Hillary Clinton is likely running again in 2016, but unlike the situation in 2008, the Democratic field is not expected to be large. If someone came to you asking for advice, uh, Bill, I'm thinking of running for president, and I know it's going to be tough, but maybe all but impossible to beat Hillary Clinton, what do you tell them? I would tell them, uh, keep your powder dry. Wait. Uh, it's just too early right now. Uh, start thinking about what your vision for the country is. Start traveling. Um, I wouldn't necessarily just wait for the favored strongest candidate, which is uh, Hillary Clinton. I would say in politics, you never know what's going to happen. Don't rule it out, but be realistic when you make the final decision. Life obviously goes on after a presidential run. Uh, You've been a private citizen for a few years. What are you working on now? Well, I've got a couple of foundations, one an international one, another one that uh, tries to protect wild horses. I do speeches, teaching, consulting. Uh, I do some work for a global communications company called APCO. Um, My life is full. I'm happy. Uh, I still participate in in public debates. I I do television, commentary, foreign policy. Uh, I go to North Korea. You know, I'm still around. I'm not ready to retire. Bill Richardson is a former two-term governor of New Mexico. As you may have learned from his commercial, he was also a member of the House, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Secretary of Energy, and nominated for several Nobel Peace Prizes. One thing not mentioned in the commercial, he also appeared on Political Junkie podcast. Bill, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Ken. All the best. Really appreciate it. Most Americans probably never heard of Paul Laxalt, but Ronald Reagan certainly did. The president was quite effusive about his friend Paul Laxalt in 1986 in a salute to the retiring senator from Nevada. The friend who understands you creates you, a wise man once said. Paul created because he always understood, and for that I am and shall always be grateful. But I'm humbled, too, knowing that so often he chose to give of himself for Nancy, for me, and always for America, his sweet promised land. So yes, I owe a great deal to Paul Laxalt, but how really does that make me any different from everyone else in this room and every other man, woman, and child who enjoys the blessing of freedom in this wonderful country tonight? Laxalt died earlier this month, four days after his 96th birthday. He served two terms in the Senate and before that, one as governor. Equally significant, he was considered Ronald Reagan's best friend in the Senate, a close advisor and honest counsel. He was with Reagan in the 1976, 1980, and 1984 presidential campaigns. As a senator, he was never known for sponsoring legislation or giving riveting speeches. But when he did speak, for example, insisting in 1986 that it was time for Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos to leave office, people noticed and he always had the president's ear. He also hoped to become the 1988 Republican nominee for president, running as Reagan's heir apparent. Here he is in March of 1987, announcing the formation of an exploratory committee. Running for president, to say the least, is an awesome venture. In my own case, I have a full and keen realization of what it's like to run for the highest office in the land having been at Ronald Reagan's side as his chairman in three presidential campaigns. 
After extended discussions, my wife Carol and I have decided to go forward. In focusing these past few weeks on these matters, I simply could not get away from two very important words, duty and obligation. In Western parlance, my friends, this hired hand is ready to take over as foreman. <laughs> but ultimately, with Reagan's vice president, George Bush, also in the race, along with conservative favorite Jack Kemp, it was hard to get traction or raise money. He was out of the race by August. His campaign was run by Jerry Carmen. Carmen was the owner of tire stores in Manchester, New Hampshire, who became the state Republican chair and then the architect of Reagan's victory in the crucial 1980 primary. For his service, he was appointed head of the General Services Administration. I knew Jerry Carmen quite well back in the 1980s when I was with ABC News, and he would regale me with the greatest political stories from his career in New Hampshire politics. And I mean the greatest. I don't believe I've spoken to him in the past 30 years, but when I heard about Laxall's passing, his was the first name I thought of. And I tracked him down. Jerry Carmen, my old friend, welcome to the Political Junkie. Well, thank you. It's too bad it took 30 years, right? I heard a rumor that you're 88 years old. Is that possible? I just turned 88. I think it's impossible, actually. Uh, and and uh, while well, my legs are a little bit impaired uh, from the waist up, I feel like I could get back into Laxalt's campaign. <laughs> well, well, you know, as I told you, you were the first person I thought of when I heard about Paul's death. Tell me, tell me your memories of him. Well, you know, there's a little bit before that, because uh, in the 1980 campaign, we had gone through 76, of course, and uh, uh, there were a lot of hard feelings at various people that didn't come along or broke away uh, when they should not have. You're talking about Reagan's challenge to Ford. Yeah, at 76, you know, Paul was chairman then, and Senator was chairman, and uh you know, that that was a campaign that almost made it and also made a lot of hard feelings in, in the in the uh, in the, in people. But we went through it and we went through seventy six, which he was the chairman and, and what a lot of people didn't realize, uh, most of us or a lot of us wanted him to be the vice presidential candidate. Uh he came from Nevada, which was a uh state known for gambling, prostitution and some other stuff. And uh, in the final evaluation, uh, the team decided that they couldn't have two Western candidates and that uh, the other thing was the state he came from. Uh, it was unfortunate, frankly. Uh, uh, I don't want to labor this point, but uh, uh, we took Bush for vice president, and uh, that really ended the the, uh, the the political drive between the, what was the Western or or. or uh, renovation, uh, modernization of the Republican Party that Reagan brought in. Bush was an uh, entitlement uh, establishment and so forth. So so it, it Bush, while Ronald Reagan always said that Bush, nobody could ask the better vice president, George Bush, at the end of his two terms, it ended the Ronald Reagan period. So with that in 19... Coming up, uh, uh, the obvious choice for president was Paul Laxall to replace uh, 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 Reagan, and uh, that's how we got into it. 
Now, what I remember most about Laxalt was, was his decency, the fact that he never got into personal attacks or dirty politics. Well, you, you know, I knew Paul quite well, as you know, and, 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 and uh, he was a great guy. And he was a loyal soldier, and, and you couldn't, you know, I, I don't know how much of his background that you know, but his father was a sheep herder. Mother ran a restaurant. So uh, when Reagan was leaving, uh, Paul wanted to replace him. I think there was a little hard feeling between him and the vice president at that time, and um, Paul wanted to be president, and I wanted him to be president. That's how we got into it. Now, but, you know, there was an impressive bunch of candidates who were running that year. There was... There was Bush, there was Bob Dole, there was Jack Kemp. Um, you could throw in Pete DuPont and Pat Robertson. But you had a pretty strong Republican field. It would have been hard to break through with that crowd, no? I, I don't... Uh, it, it would have been probably impossible, okay? But it probably was impossible to be president anyway because at our press, first press conference... Well, we had uh, briefed uh, the senator on what we thought he should say and how he should go and so forth, uh, and what not to get into, which is really important. You know, one thing, Ken, about politicians, uh, they have a hump on their back. I used to call it that. So if you ask them a question that involved that hump, instead of ignoring it, they'd go on forever trying to explain it. And... uh, Right out of the box, they asked Paul about, I think Paul signed a, the, uh, a bill in, in Nevada that legalized prostitution and did some other gambling things. And, and they, they went into that, and, and he must have taken a half hour on that question. Really used up all of, used to be in the business, so you know. So he used up really but all of his uh, uh, really good press time on that one question. Uh, and never he used to try to explain it like uh, that if that became uh, uh, in Nevada the textile business was uh, your business became Nevada gambling was your business so um, he tried to explain it away like that and, and um, you could tell by the end of the press conference that it was going to be a tough row. There was always the complaint. There was always the rub that that Laxalt was not, shall we say, the hardest working member of the Senate. But how was he as a candidate? Did he did he have that fire in the belly that to be president? Well, you know, as a campaign worker or chairman, he was the best, but he never got into details. So, I mean, when you're running a campaign, you don't want the titular head of the, the campaign bothering you, okay? So when they say he was lazy, he wasn't necessarily lazy, but he uh, it wasn't into those details, which I thought was great, frankly. He never seemed to have Reagan's presence or charm. I mean, obviously there was only one Ronald Reagan. No, uh, I, I used to be a little amazed at that because everybody would, con- you know, they worked together from the West. They were governors at the same time. They were good friends. Uh, and, and also philosophically about the conservative issues and so forth, they were really both together. And so that that wasn't a problem, but he wasn't really like Reagan, and and the, the, the press for some reason sort of made him twins. Uh, but Paul was much different. I mean, Paul, frankly, Paul was much tougher uh, than than when you dealt with him than Reagan was. Uh, Reagan had a different way about him. I, I can remember a difference I had with Reagan, President Reagan, on something, and. Uh, 
Uh, of course, I was told by his chairman what the decision was, uh, 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 I think by Bill Casey and Ed Meese, and uh, I didn't like the decision, so I said I want to hear from the pre- his governor, from the governor himself at the time. So I went in his office, and and uh, uh, I couldn't believe how nice he handled me, but didn't change his mind. So Paul was a little different. If I went into Paul's office as senator or work campaign, and we had a disagreement, it would be a disagreement. I mean, we would be arguing, and, and probably the language wouldn't be that great and so forth, and, and um, it would be a little heated. You never got that from the president. So they were nothing alike to deal with. What did you find to be the toughest roadblock in running the campaign? Uh, the campaign came along pretty good, actually. Uh, it was the candidate himself. And and frankly, he didn't have the stomach for it. I remember when he uh, decided he went, he went up up to the mountain at home. He has a had a hat at home up on top of a, a mountain in, in Nevada. And uh, his friend, his assistant, calls me that night and says, um, uh, "The senator has decided not to run. Please tell the, the people, uh, the campaign people, and so forth, and 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 several of his very close friends that were there." at the campaign headquarters at the time. And I said, you've got to be kidding. And he said, no, he's thought about it, and, he, and he's not going to run. And I said, well, I'd like to talk to him. He said, well, there's no phone up there. Yeah. And then he asked me again to tell the campaign workers it was over. And I said, look, I'm not telling them that. You tell them to get on the phone, come down here, or, or the phone, come down and use it, and tell these people himself, which he did. So about 30 minutes later, I got a phone call. We put him on the speaker, and he announced the campaign was over. But uh, So that's a little story about him. I remember telling you 30 years ago that you have to write a book because you had, I mean, some of these stories can't be repeated now, but you had the best political stories that I've ever heard from anyone. Any chance you're going to write a book? That, well, I thought about I'm getting a little old for it. I'm the, uh, uh, people have always said that to me, but I always had, as you know, the stories I told were always sort of funny or humorous. Uh, I never quite got to feel my friends that were in government with me that we saved the world, you know. Uh, book, book after book, I, I mean, I could write about Ronald Reagan easily and dealing with him and working with him. I, I was always proud that he used to say that he wouldn't have been president, but for me, I knew it wasn't true, but I loved hearing it, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and so, sort of, and I, and I was privileged, I think, that is a privilege, I think I had a, like I was passed for three years, but, and after that, I, many times I'd go in and talk to the president, uh, and, uh, no note taker, no, at first, you know, usually when you're talking to the president of the United States, somebody's there taking notes, so you don't misquote him and so forth, but, um, I go and just talk to him, just he and I, and we talk like I'm talking to you. Uh, and and, uh, and I don't know, uh, I don't want to take a lot of your time, but I don't know. I think when you come from New Hampshire, uh, we think the government works for us. And, like, if you want to go see the governor of New Hampshire, I think it's the same. Uh, young Sununu is here. You'd go up to the Capitol. You'd walk up the stairs or take a rickety airport uh, elevator. It's easier to walk up, walk up the stairs. You walk into the governor's office. There may be one policeman there that's usually a driver, but nobody else. You can say to the secretary, I'd like to see the governor. 
in the museum, chances are he'd see you. Uh, and, and, if, and if not, they'd make an appointment. So the governor of New Hampshire works the citizens of New Hampshire. I always looked at the president that way. I was never really in awe of the, of the president of the United States or, or senators or something, because I always figured we're equals. You know, and so when I went and talked to the president, uh, it was just great. I mean, he was relaxed. I was relaxed. And we talked about taxes, things like that. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, uh, Nancy, uh, I had a great relationship with her, and a lot of folks didn't. But uh, I had no problems with her, and I had been difficult with her during the campaign because you have to do certain things. And, and uh, I had no problem with her at all. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's the way I conducted myself and still do. But uh, it was just such a great, when I look back, you talk about writing a book. When I look back and think of the privileges that I had, and, and I see, and Ken, I see these people now who go in the White House, like somebody just quit and is raising hell about everything. Uh, I, I wandered around the White House. I used to go and talk to Jim Baker. I talked to Ed Meese, I talked Ed Harper, who was, was whoever had the job that was there, Judge Clark, uh, who I didn't know as well as the others. But but uh, uh, certainly I could have written a book, you know, then really, just thirty years ago or now twenty something years, uh, uh, and um, and and the book would have been. Would, would have been fun or human. Uh, it, it's it's really hard Ken, to explain how these people that we elect to office uh, normally leave us behind. Ronald Reagan never did, never did. And, and he, when the day he left office, he was the same as he went in. I never heard a cuss word from him. I ne- I never heard. Um, uh, uh, I never saw him without suit and tie in the office, and so I'm in other West and so forth. Uh, I could talk more about him than Paul, which I understand isn't the subject matter. But 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 uh, uh, he was the same. It was ama- it was amazing, uh, and, and um, I could tell you stories all day long. If you're not going to huh? if you how about this? If you're not going to write a book, I'll just come over to your house and you'll tell me more stories. Is, is that okay? Oh, uh, I, I, I'll buy you lunch. Uh, I'll, 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 uh, I'm 88 years old. I can't find anybody that hasn't heard my stories before, so it'll be pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely going to take you up on this. I have younger guys like you. I tell them to raise their hand when they've heard it before, okay? (laughs) Jerry Carmen is the former Republican state chairman of New Hampshire, who was the architect of Ronald Reagan's 1980 primary victory in the Granite State. In 1987, he managed the presidential exploratory effort of Paul Laxalt, the former governor and senator from Nevada, who died earlier this month. Jerry, it was wonderful hearing your voice again. Uh, I'm serious about lunch. I'll give you a call. Okay, if you're paying, I'll be there. Okay, thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks Jerry. Bye-bye. of the world.
That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Could we?